Welcome to another Energy Crew podcast. I'm your host, JP Warren. I want to say thank you, everyone out there, for uh, tuning in and uh, and listening uh, to this podcast. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, but nothing quite like Energy Crew. You know what I mean? And we're uh, recording this uh, today at the Petroleum Club uh, of, uh, of Houston. And uh, I think it's the, the Game 6 of the World Series tonight. So by the time people hear this, they're going to know if we're the victors of that or not. It's like a, it's like a reverse Back to the Future too. That's it. You know what I mean? So, uh, so w- w- why don't you? What else? What else I got to say? Uh, th- uh, thanks for everyone tuning in. Uh, you know, please share. You know, if, if y'all don't mind, uh, leave a review or, or like it or share it. Uh, spread the word. Spread the, spread the good word. And I'm sitting here. Uh, why don't we introduce ourselves? Why don't we start over here with uh, with Derek? It's uh, Derek Nixon, President and CEO of Barrow Energy Solutions. All right. And who else? And Jim Nixon, chairman of Nixon Energy Investments. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Y'all have the same last name. Go on. <laughs> you, want, you want to get into this a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's tell the story a little bit. So, well, let's, sure. so, so real quick. So before we start, I mean, obviously, we're sitting here with father and son, a dynamic duo of Veril, uh, Veril, Veril Energy, Energy Service. Solutions. Yeah, Energy that's Solutions. That's the rebrand. Yep. That's the rebrand. And actually, since since you and I talked last time, I had you on my previous podcast. It was you, you and Jamie Sparron, right? Correct. Yep. And we try to sit a little bit uh, close, just get that. So there you go. Yeah, perfect. So we uh, so we had you on previously, and I think it was right before the rebrand. I mean, you you were rocking the purple jacket, and I was complimenting that, and yep. you were like, "Hey, look, we got something going on. Something, yep. Something's happening here. What happened there, real quick?" And then let's kind of let's back up a little bit. Yeah, no, we just saw a perfect opportunity. You know, the world was uh, COVID is happening. All price war was happening. We just bought the business. Thought, so, hell, what better time to rebrand the business? Let's get some positive news out there. Let's uh, get the company out front and center in front of everybody. You know, good news wasn't plentiful at that time. So oh, no, it wasn't. It actually ended up being the perfect time to rebrand the business. You know, people were drawn to it naturally. The purple stands out. People it's, love it. There's a lot of pride in the purple inside the business. So. I'm telling you, once I saw that, I think you and I were kind of, uh, you know, shooting the shit about that a little bit. But once I saw that, the, the, the purple jack and the purple <laughs> rebrand, also, it was exciting, you know. I don't know if it was exciting because I got to – hear about it before it actually happened but i mean <laughs> the sneak peek but at the same time you saw a lot of people being very proud and be, being very happy to throw on once they were like what is the best uh, the best salesperson yeah. got a yeah. got a, got a the uh, best contributors blazer. for the for the year at the end of each year we pick two from each hemisphere that get the purple jacket somewhat like the masters but not quite I as popular i love that though that's such a great idea it's different it's identifiable you know people could see that i mean it's, it's conversation starter and i i, I love that idea because it spreads. Absolutely. And people internally want those jackets, right? It, it, it creates that atmosphere where, where people want to be recognized. People want to stand up and be accountable every day. And it really talks to the spirit of Errol just really around the resilience of the team over the last 18 months. We've been through a lot of change. I mean, a lot of change every single day. And the organization just keeps coming back for more. So, yeah. how, so how? I guess, I guess, from our first conversation, real quick, uh, how how did how was the rest of y'all's uh, until now? I mean, obviously, uh, with the rebrands, exciting times. I think, there, I think you acquired maybe some. I don't, I don't know what you. But y'all are blowing and going pretty yeah. much, and uh, and I think uh, you know it, it was ex- during a, a down shit time, pretty much. There was a lot of positive energy and a lot of uh, great momentum y'all had and, and, and great um, transformation. Yeah, I no, no, absolutely. And it, it allowed us to really look at the business and understand who we are and who we wanted to be and who we wanted to actually sell to going forward. Because that, gone are the right days. There. That's big right there. Get into that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, gone are the days of trying to be as big as all the big four. Right. You need to really understand your customers and who you want to deal with. Because not all customers are great customers. Exactly. You know, and that's the world we live in today and we can't be everywhere. So you know, we've got really big strategic focus on North America right. and the Middle East. You know, everything outside of there is is important at the same time, but not as important. That's when the, we put resources in, 
we're putting them into these areas to really grow that top line revenue. So why? So why? Uh, why the U.S. and the first off, uh, cheers, boys. We're you know I. I, I I can't be uh, sitting here with two Scotsmen and not be having a not be having a scotch this uh, this uh, this early uh, in the day. So cheers, y'all. What, cheers. Are, what are we sipping on? We're sipping on some uh, Dalwini. Dalwini fifteen. Dalwini fifteen, which is Very my nice. personal favorite scotch. Yeah. Thank you for having us on the show. We're excited mm, to be. I'm here. happy all here. And we actually ran into. First off, let me get, let's get back to the question. But we actually ran into each other at um, it was at the Eric, Eric Clapton. Clapton, John Dinkins, and uh, Tyler Schultz with Aventive yep. and Lauren Bell. We were all there, and we ran into y'all too. There, yeah, that's where yeah, we met. That's so. right. Yeah. I think that's kind of where it's it's burning up because I've been blowing and going. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to kind of touch base with, you know, my contacts and my friends and all that stuff and kind of find out what's been going on just because it's like starting this thing. Obviously, you know, it's mile a minute, yeah. you know, I so I think it was so great catching up. And that's that's the universe putting putting you all on my path. You get in the same space, reconnect, come back on, talk about what's happened. I dig it. So um, so why, why the Middle East and the U.S.? Why is that the focus? You know, it's it's we see and we find that we can be a highly successful and profitable business on a lot of these land-based operations. You know, we have a larger rig count, places like Kuwait, places like Saudi, yep. places like Abu Dhabi, and then the U.S. land. You know, and the technology drives faster in these places, and we're able to deliver better value for the customers at the same time. Yeah, because because the, the Middle East, I, I remember being in Saudi. I mean, they were very, um, they would try out most technology. Yeah. You know what I mean? As, as long as you paid for it, they would try yeah. out most oh, technology. They're happy they, to try it for free, throw, for sure. They throw whatever down the hole to make sure to, yep. to see what would work if they'd pick that up, so... Absolutely. So it's it's really just, again, going back to just core competencies, understanding who we are and who we want to be. And that's just really brought us along this path of we don't need to be everywhere. But at the same time, we've spun off this other kind of separate P&L, which is just uh, contract manufacturing. Because we're really one of the industry leaders in manufacturing, especially around roller codes and primary cementing equipment. Okay. You know, we're at a point now where we sell to competitors. Really? Yeah. That's a pretty good so situation what? to be in. That, that's an awesome situation. And that's one of the things you've got to compliment this team about is they've adapted to the current circumstances and the situation they find them in incredibly well. When everybody was running for the, for the ditches, they're rebranding and putting out this great new message. And then they're saying, yeah, I mean, we should be looking at what can we do with the big competitors. There's going to be consolidation in this market, right? Yeah. So how do we participate in that? And how do we take advantage of it? Look for the opportunity and everything that's happening. So how, how do we uh, how do we actually uh, what is it uh, be a part of it versus just sit on the right. sideline and wait for the change? So exactly. I think you've seen it in the EMPs already. All this mass consolidation, especially in the U.S. land. And at the same time, you know the big four. It's it's becomes harder and harder for them to to meet their shareholders' uh, investments and what their expectations are around cleaner energy, around energy transition. But at the same time, someone's going to have to manufacture products every single day. You're right because that's where they make a lot of money still today. So it's been able to take this shift and really COVID's what taught us that is, you know, we also often refer to it as a bit of a whitewater raft and you're going down the river and just trying to avoid rocks. Yeah. Staying alive and then at the same time understanding when you see an opportunity ahead of you, pivot fast and go capture it. So it's not just riding the rapids, it's actually being able to maneuver and steer through, through the exactly. through the church. See what's coming at you, times. understand the speed at which it's coming at you. And just be part of the change. And using that momentum that you're building as you go through those rapids and make those changes in direction, that's really important. So that's that's actually a great point because that's something, I don't think that's something a lot of people discuss. I mean, once you once, once a company has momentum, obviously you've seen this throughout your career. And obviously I want to get a little background, obviously, who you are. Because right now people are listening, okay, we got you know two Scotsmen and an Irishman. So, uh, <laughs> oh, I made a joke. Yeah, we could probably conquer the world. I made a joke. <laughs> If it wasn't for this stuff, so uh, that might just make us more creative, though. So I know. So uh, make the world a better place. So, um, so I mean, let's talk about momentum real quick in, in kind of your career, because a lot of people when they see momentum, you know what I mean? It's like it's great. There, there's that one victory, 
you know, like, oh, yeah, it was great. There's a one. But that was a good point you brought up is, is, is actually tuning into the momentum and actually using that to kind of fuel the, the, the growth or the evolution or the adaptation of whatever company is doing sure. that or, or individuals. So, so we're, we're, talk about so that. So we bought this company for the first time. It was Varro Manufacturing in 1998. 1998. And I pulled okay. together a, a, a very talented team of managers to come in alongside me and actually buy the company from Mr. Daniel Varro. Okay. Who was the original founder owner and at 84 was still running the company. So, I mean, it was a long protracted negotiation. It took us 15 months from my first meeting with him till he felt um, good enough to actually do the transaction, let it go. At that time, this was a manufacturing company. Mr. Barrow's philosophy was really um, sell them cheap and stack them deep. And it was mainly industrial type drill bits. Okay. And I had this view coming out of the oil and gas business and being in energy for most of my career that we could take this company and use some of the core capabilities of it and parlay into an international or a global um, oil and gas service business. So I come along with this $30 million deal to buy this company. And my view is this could be a billion dollar company and everybody's laughing at me, right? right. I think this guy's crazy. He's <laughs> lost his mind, you know? And I remember one of, the, one of the most telling points was first presentation, just bought the company, young Scots guy in a Dallas, Texas based business, got a town hall meeting in front of all these seasoned old Texan manufacturing guys. And I'm standing up there and saying, hey, we're going to make this a $100 million business in the next three years. And three people actually burst out laughing. It's really? impossible. It could never happen. This was a $30 million revenue business. And I'm saying, we'll make a $100 million in two or three years. Burst out laughing. You know, those people were... Uh, eating their words three years later. Well when, well, when something like that happens, let's say, you know, you have those goals, you have those, the, the, the vision, you know, you, you have those dreams and yet, you know, people that are, I guess, are accustomed to, I guess, how you work, you know, historically, you know what I mean? Like, uh, they're, you know, it, it's tough to pull those people on board. You know sure. what I mean? So, so once you're kind of in this situation, you're, and you're laying out the mission, laying out the vision, where you want it to go. And you have those people laughing. Well, what does that do to you? Does it, does it oh, kind of make you second guess yourself? Or no, what? It, it honestly just reinforces the fact that you've set a heady enough goal that people can't believe it. And if you're going to set a goal for an organization, it's got to be one that is big and hairy and audacious, right? You've got to be thinking we're going to transform this. So you've got to set something where the bar's high enough that everybody's thinking this is impossible. And then on a daily basis, you help educate them to how it's actually possible. We do this we make incremental little changes every day and we move towards improving our quality and building this business up. You can get everyone there. So after about 12 months, you've got people on board. The ones that are on board are on board. The ones that aren't are kind of gone <laughs> um, by that point. So you've got to sort that's out true. the team and make sure that people buy into the vision because that's what leadership is, right? Leadership to me is all about bringing the team with you. If you can't bring the team with you, you can't do anything. So you've got to bring the team with you towards those big audacious goals. What's leadership to you? Exactly that. It's it's surrounding yourself with the best pe best people in the business, you know. But this is my leader, right? You know. <laughs> so what? So let's let's get into this. Let's get into this relationship because I want to hear about. It. I want, obviously want to hear about Vera. I want, yeah. I want to hear about kind of the the, the history uh, behind this 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 growing uh, company, this growing brand. Obviously, what's going on right now. But um, so real quick, what was it like? I mean, what was it like growing up in the oil field? What was it like, kind of? Uh, you know, are you proud? Was, are, you was, pr are you proud of your son? Uh, absolutely. I, mean, I, I can't. I can't even think about Derek and my other son James, who's in the company as well, without smiling and thinking, "Man, those boys have come a long, long way." But you know, uh, we I grew wish up. My in dad Oracle. was proud of me. Like that. <laughs> Derek was sure. two years old when we moved to Aberdeen, Scotland. Okay. And I moved in from general engineering into oil and gas offshore work there. Um, uh, uh, just crazy. Our, our life growing up and their life growing up was 
a little bit privileged okay. because we were doing really well. It's right. a very buoyant economy up there in Aberdeen. But Derek's mum and I, we were balls to the ball every single day between looking after the kids, getting things organized. I was entertaining Thursday, Friday, Saturday every week. We were building a, a, a growing drill boot business. Um, uh, it was just unbelievable. Um, but it was a great time. Everybody mixed. Aberdeen yeah. was a place where you kind of knew everybody. Right. You knew all your clients, you know your competitors, all the kids mixed at schools and stuff like that. So we had a great upbringing there. Absolutely. Was Aberdeen very, was it, I guess, I, mean, I think, I feel like Aberdeen has a lot of expats now. Was there a lot of expats back then? Oh, when I went yeah. back, when we moved there, uh, we moved up to Aberdeen from Glasgow in 1985. Okay. It was full of expats. There was hardly any indigenous leaders. Okay. Scots people leading any of the oil and gas companies. So over the last, you know, over a period of 20 years, you saw that changing where cost became a factor, cost of expats being there, building the skills and, and the capabilities of the Scottish workforce right. to take. And now you find Scots people all over the world and every major oil field. You really do. All coming from that. You really do. And you always play that name game. Hey, do you know this guy? Exactly. It's, like, <laughs> it's a country. It's not a, it's not a fraternity. It's a country. Yeah. yeah. But you know, if they're in oil and gas, you probably do know them. Yeah, because true. it's a small community within a small, com a small country. Or you'll you know? have a common common point. Yeah. You'll know someone that knows it's each other. It's always one degree always separation. One degree, yeah. you're right. One degree separation. Absolutely. But, but there was an American school in Aberdeen. That's, oh, yeah. that's how many people, you know, kids really? were over there from their parents working in the oil field as well. Else. I remember we used to go to the petroleum club. Yeah, absolutely. He, he learned to swim at the petroleum club, as with his brother. And, yeah. you know, we so would go to you, functions. You've been there. oil and gas pretty much, you know, oh, when you were five a, years old. Yeah, been around it my entire life. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. what, so what, was it, what was it like kind of actually go on? You were about to say something? No, he, so he's got memories of his mum bitching in the morning because we'd been out late and I'm a really good sleeper and his mum's not a good sleeper. So the phone would ring in the middle of the night and there's some guy calling from offshore. <laughs> We've got the cord battle stuck in a hole. What are we going to do? And, and it doesn't like, matter what time Circulate it is. bottoms up. Yeah. Call in the morning. It doesn't matter what time it is. <laughs> but could you imagine not having a cell phone and deal with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I you're think, getting a phone call to the house to yeah. do those So calls. I'm always so fascinated about kind of like, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, salespeople or, you know, drone yeah. engineers or, you know, completion engineers back in the day before cell phones, before, you know, before computers and LinkedIn and all that stuff. Just, you know, because people actually had to meet before. You know what I mean? There was no uh, email requests or meetings. It was it was people interacting with people on a closer basis. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean? phones and sending faxes. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, faxes was revolutionary. I yeah. remember trying to send some technical details to my office in, in Holland. And my company at that point didn't have a fax machine. So we had to take the drawing to some other company who had a fax machine that could fax the drawing to the guys. And that was right at the early stages. Remember, we had pagers and the cell phones came. And were were like huge, Zach Moore style. You know, unbelievable change. But back then, it was all about being there in person. I mean, yeah. I was managing director of a company in the UK um, that, that ran the North Sea for a European company. And uh, my day every day would start 6 a.m., morning meetings with Chevron, Total, BP, and be hitting all those offices before I'd even get to the office by 10 o'clock, you know? No, one of my buddies, um, his, his father, Matt Harbison, his father, Russell Harbison, um, he, he would tell me stories, you know, his dad would get home after he was asleep growing up. And then in the morning, he'd get up and get back out there and start to, you know, bringing breakfast and meet with customers and all that Absolutely. stuff. And he said, because if, if I wasn't there, my competitor was yep, there. Sure. And there was that, there was no text in, there's nothing like that. Yeah, and you oh, just yeah. had to be present. Yeah, yeah. You, you, had, you had to be. And I actually, I kind of feel like uh, being present and, and, and being around people these days is, is, I think the importance, I think it's a little bit lost, but I think the value in it is just monumental. I think it's crazy. 
I, th- I think that there's definitely a, a need and a want for people getting back in front of each other again. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this last 18, 19 months has taught us that people can work remotely and people can be successful in certain roles, but at the end of the day, it's certain roles and people need to be together. Exactly. That's how you solve problems. It's not the, the planned meeting. It's the conversation that happens out of something that's said. That's where a lot of success comes. It's yes. just taken for granted a little bit today. But in saying that, though, I think you're right. There's a real need for getting together, but people's time is so valuable now. I mean, you look at brilliant engineers today. They live and die on their iPad and their phone, right? Is, let me ask so you. you've got to get past that and build a relationship. Everybody's time is so precious and they've got so much on their plate. Versus, I mean, when I was selling early on, going back to the, the late 80s, I could go and sit and have a 45-minute chat with a drilling superintendent or drilling manager, and there was no pressure. You try and do that now, everybody's got 100-month things they're trying to get to, you know? I, I feel like everyone's time is valuable, you know what I mean? But I don't feel like the value of time has increased throughout the years, you know what I mean? I feel like people think their value of time has increased throughout the years just because there's so much distraction, so much noise, so much to attend to, so many emails to get back with, so much. To, but at the end of the day, if you cut out that noise, I'm listening to this book called Stillness right now. You know what I mean? Pretty much, you know, kind of like Napoleon. Napoleon would have a three-week delay before you would have any mail because usually the urgent stuff would kind of settle itself and the non-urgent stuff would kind of fall by the wayside, right? So it was kind of like a, a very procrastination, lazy <laughs> piece of shit way to do things. But I kind of dig that, you know what I mean? Like, because it doesn't clutter, like, if something pops in your email box, you Everything think it's important. can be important if you make it important. Exactly. You know, and the reality is if it's really important, someone's going to call. Exactly, exactly. So, so that's just the way so it is. So that's, that's gauge, it's gauging the importance and urgency it's of something. Having that self-control to be able to do that is the hard part these days because everybody feels that pressure to have their phone on them all the time, pick it up and look at it, do things as they come in. So, you know, having that ability, you know, I talk about work-life balance and, you know, I preach it all the time to everybody that works for me in the organization, my team, direct reports, indirect reports, whatever it is, but it's always a struggle. It doesn't matter. Sure. You can say it all day, but coming home and plugging your phone and not looking at it till the next morning, I know. that's hard to do. Dude, I, it's, 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 it's almost constant, impossible. It's a constant challenge. So, so, so you get the company, you're given this meeting, you know, people are laughing at you for saying you want, you have bigger and better things. You have, you have a sure. brighter future, you know, for this and people are laughing at you. So kind of tell me what it was like growing a company. I guess you said 98, you bought it. And 98, we bought it. And, and so it was a cheap and cheerful manufacturing company and, and quality wasn't high in the agenda. Mr. Vardell's attitude was, hey, if it doesn't work, give them another one. No big deal. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember one of the first big hurdles we had was, I'm in the company, I've got private equity backing me, we're we're there to make a return. And I see in my first month in the seat, I'm seeing like 550,000 in credits coming through. And I'm like, what is this? And the guy's like, no, no, that's normal. That's about the regular run rate of credits. I'm saying, what is that for? You know, and they're saying, oh yeah, they're not happy with the bit, so we just give them a new one. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And that was the culture. So we immediately backed right into quality. And, and the story I like to tell most about that is quite simply that over a period of about 12 months, the credits dropped from $500,000 a month to about $25,000 a month. In the meantime, the scrap we were finding in the manufacturing plant went from nothing to about $220,000 a month. So we highlighted the problem is really there in manufacturing. It turns out that the attitude of, of Mr. Varro was he would fly down to the manufacturing plant once a month and anything that had been scrapped, he would write an engineering disposition for it and let them use it. So all that junk's getting built into the bits. So of course we cut that out dramatically. Okay. So, but then we see that we've got $220,000 of scrap a month. How do we work on that? Well, you work into the quality systems, start putting the checks and balances in place and eventually 
we got the scrap down to where it was less than one percent of the output. That's that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a I would say a a, a, a fun time. Mm. I'd imagine the fact that you're 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 getting all these you know uh, credits that are going out, and you know obviously customers you know when there's credits going out, customers realize hey look it's not good, but if it breaks we'll get it we'll get yeah. a free one. You know you know what I mean. So and now you're improving the quality of the product, which is uh, the equipment product, whatever you want sure. to call it, and I think that translates. I mean, is that something that y'all communicated to the customer? Absolutely. Okay. Every opportunity, we, we, we would have presentations in town hall meetings. We'd go to customer's office, do lunch and learn and talk about the quality system, the implementation of the quality system. I remember we had a lot of business and still do with Apache when Apache was a prolific land ruler here in the U.S. All right. And uh, we had uh, uh, some small diameter drill bits, six and an eighth or six and a quarter. And we had a couple of breakages where the, the robot went to bottom and the arm broke off. Okay. Right. And so we're scurrying to get all these bits back off the rigs and find out what's going on. About 10 days later, I go into the Apache driller manager's office and I say, okay, here's the deal. This is how we make these parts. We do a carburization process to harden the exterior and toughen the interior. There's a paint off process to do this. We were making a mistake. The drawing for the paint off procedure had an error on it and we were painting off an area that shouldn't have been painted off, which meant it wasn't being hardened okay. and that was where these cracks were propagating and the guy looked at me um the, the drilling manager looked at me and says so what are you telling me i'm saying hey, it's our fault we've pulled all the bits off the rig give us a couple of weeks we'll get replacement speed we've improved the quality system and he looked at me and i and said you're the first drill gig but guy that's ever told me there's a problem with your product they became a great customer after that because there was trust built because we told the truth we pulled all the bits off the rig we gave them all the credit for the ones that had broken and we went back to them with a new process, showing them how the quality had been fixed. Tick the box. There we go. But I think that's I think that's important. I think that's also something that I think you probably passed on uh, to Derek is the fact that, look, oil field's the oil field. Things are going to, you know, shit the bed anytime. You know what I mean? That, that's the oil field. Things right. go wrong. But if you're getting the finger pointing game, well, it was his fault, not mine. It was his fault, not mine. Versus being vulnerable and being honest sure. about what's going on, what you found out, what you discovered. I think that the trust right there is tremendous. Yeah, you got to get front and center. You got to just say how it is sometimes. And, and if it's your fault, you got to own it and yeah. just work to build Ups. it back up. And, you know, I remember just being in Oklahoma City sometimes, you know, drilling superintendent called me and say, hey, coming out the hole, thinking about picking up this bit or that bit. And it was one of our competitors, ours. And I said, if I was you, I'd have picked up the, I'll pick up the other one. It's going to do you a better section right here, probably. It's a bit more proven. And he goes, I really appreciate that. I'm going to run you after that one then. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you create that trust. Trust, yeah. trust, trust is the most important thing in this business. Look, I the, completely the, agree. The customers are putting a great deal of trust in what they use downhole because our product may be $20,000, but their well is $10 million, right? Drop in the bucket. Yep. They drop in the bucket comparison to that. So you got to, you got to make sure you're building that trust and doing what's right. So building quality is sacrosanct for me anyway. And it's, I know it's for Derek and the team there Absolutely. is all about quality and eliminating the possibility of failure. Because my favorite quote is that drill bits are just like race cars. The drivers are always going to push them right to the edge of the limit. And if you're not pushing to the limit, you're not drilling fast enough. You're not pushing hard enough. I think so Abraham, there's always opportunity for failure because of that. I think that was Abraham Lincoln's quote. That's a great quote huh. about drill bits and race cars. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so tell, me, so tell me about this. So obviously, so how, how old were you in, uh, when, when this is 19, I guess 1998? I mean, you're dealing with this for what, 18 months, trying to get the, the credits down, yeah. you're trying to put the, so how, how, how old was Derek? I, so, I would have been 16 then in yeah. boarding school in Scotland still. Okay. And yeah. you were living over here. Yeah, okay. so which was a big, we, we, my wife and I moved over here with Dresser Industries um, uh, uh, 
big Dallas-based uh, okay. fuel service business, 20-odd billion dollars in revenues, 26 divisions. That was my opportunity to move here and become president of one of those operating divisions. So you moved to Dallas? So moved to Dallas, okay. Texas, right? Derek and his, his brother, his older brother James, they decided that they had so many friends in boarding school that they would opt to go to boarding school in Scotland. So they went to Gordon. Makes school. sense. Up in the north of Scotland, because we yeah. we could have been here for three years. We didn't realize it was going to be a lifetime and a life change like that. Um, but when Dresser Industries was acquired by Halliburton, and Halliburton's got a great organization, but it's a matrix organization with none of those division presidents. I'm right. thinking, oh, I got to take control of my own destiny here. I brought my family here, and I found Varro Manufacturing. So when we bought it, Varro was a thirty thirty five million dollar a year market cap business. When we sold it to Sandvik in 2014, the value was 760 million. Wow. And that was over three private equity ownerships and three changes of ownership with the management team rolling, rolling equity at each change and building with it. And the last deal we had, we had over 52 management shareholders in the business. So besides, I guess, besides improving quality and besides, um, you know, reducing the, the, the credits you're giving out and all that stuff. I mean, how do you take a company from where it was at 13? I'm, I'm going to get my numbers wrong, obviously. Um, how do you, how do you take a company from 13 million to that 750 million mark? I guess in the time that you, what, like what, what, what kind of stuff do you focus on? Is it the team? Is it the product? Is it the communication of it? Is it, what, what, what are you focused at? All I mean, of the I'm, above, I'm, but at different times. Okay. So there's an evolution of the business where you've got to set the foundation first, get the quality right and get the team right and then start building on market expansion, look for new products. I mean, during the, the tenure with Varel from 98 to 2014, um, we went through a lot of very, very dramatic changes, changes in manufacturing. We introduced lean to our manufacturing facility okay. in Mexico. We built remote repair facilities all over the US. We internationalized the business. I mean, I remember that we bought the company in 1998, and I don't know if you remember 1999, but the U.S. rig count went from about 1,600 <laughs> to less than 500. I don't know. I don't know anything about the oil and gas industry until 2005, so right. I didn't know that. So, so thank you. So there you go. So I bought the company in 98, looking to grow it, and the next year the rig count in the U.S. has dropped from over 1,600 rigs to less than 500. 498. I remember that number. It's etched in my brain. And that's such a gut feeling because it's like, that's so, it's, 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 it doesn't matter how well you operate your business or the team you build or yeah. the quality you have. If, if, if there's certain circumstances are in our industry that are just out of our control. Right. And so the fact that you're able to navigate that, that's just, it's just like, you got to focus on, as I think you said this a lot, you got to focus on what you can control. What you can control, what you can influence on a daily basis. Everything else is noise at that point, right. honestly. And that's the way we felt about it. The, the good news was that, at that point, we weren't really in oil and gas. It was mining equipment and industrial drill bits. So we were building an oil and gas product line during that big downturn. So when the market started to come back, all the big competitors have reduced their inventory levels and we we're building some inventory. So we're looking at opportunities. So as the oh. market came back in 99, 2000, 2001, we were poised to actually take new design product, oil and gas products out there. Also, we did a couple of small acquisitions. We we bought a small PDC bit company in Conroe, Texas that okay. had good manufacturing. Okay. We bought a small PDC bit company in France that had great design, combined the two, built a world-class PDC bit company. We went from zero PDC sales, full of crystal and diamond robot sales, and in 2000 to 2014, 160 million of sales in that product line, right? So you, there's things that happen. Uh, we also bought a Walker McDonald drill bits, which was really a step Barrow wasn't really in oil and gas drill bits. Walker McDonald was. We bought that small company in Greenville, Texas, and merged the manufacturing and the designs together. So you're looking for opportunities 
to bring technology on board. You're looking to develop technology as well, and you're looking for the best route to market with the technology you can either acquire, you can either build. Yeah, finding the synergies and then the opportunities, right? It's you got so much stuff to go out there and look at, and the same things we look at today is, but you have to find synergies and and fill gaps, right? In your portfolio, be a PDC product line or expansion into the primary cementing equipment, there's an opportunity there to leverage scale at that point. And you've got a big global organization, and as you're growing, the more clubs you can put in the bag to play, right? The more sure. success you have. Well, uh, okay. So if I'm playing devil's advocate, yes, obviously you do obviously know more. Both y'all know more about this than obviously <laughs> I do. I'm just sitting here bullshit on a podcast. But when you're looking at these 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 clubs to go in the bag, mm-hmm. you know, obviously each club costs a certain amount. It yep. takes a certain amount of resources to go find, to swing, and all that stuff. So how are you, how I guess in, uh, growing the company and kind of grow where you're at today, Derek. Yep. I guess. What are some key things that you look at if you're looking at a company or is it, I mean, you just, I love how you just said, you know, this, they had great quality. They had a great design. They were uh, known in the oil and gas industry. So you're kind of taking what they're known for and bringing them together. Has that changed, I guess, in the the project? Not only has it changed, but also how do you identify the clubs that you need in the bag? Yeah. And I think bringing us to to where we are today is, is you got to have three things when we look at deal today. Positive EBITDA, which can be hard at times still, even for companies today. Yep. Positive cash flow. Okay. And synergies. And synergies could be headcount. It could be manufacturing synergies. It could be design, whatever it might look like. The problem is that, especially during a downturn, what we've just seen is there's a lot of businesses out there. Yeah. Most don't check those boxes that are for sale because they're at the other end of that spectrum, right? right? And the last thing you want to do is take on someone else's problem because that becomes your problem and distraction from your core business. So we have those three things that we must have any deal we look at today. So, okay. So... You're growing this. So what, what are you seeing? Okay, so you're over in Scotland right now. You're, you're in boarding school. You know, your dad's over here and your family's over here. And grow, what, 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 what are you seeing, I guess? Or I guess, yeah, what, what, on your side of the pond, what, what, what are you seeing in this whole process? Yeah, I mean, honestly, probably not seeing a lot of it, just being in a different country at time. But, you know, growing up and watching my father do what he did in Aberdeen, you know, progressive up through the business. It was Diamond Board Stradivit at the sure. time, which is Halliburton HDBS. Okay. So that's where the, they bought that business from. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's kind of peripheral and you know about it, you come back in town. But I remember clear as day, uh, work experience at 16 years old, sitting on a carbide press in Carlton, Texas for eight hours a day during summer holidays. Oh, your summer holidays? <laughs> yeah. With no air conditioning <laughs> in Texas. Welcome to so Texas. We yeah. had this philosophy that was they need to, the boys, both James and Derek, need to understand the value of a dollar and they need to understand what it takes to earn it. So they would come. I mean, the first year they came from boarding school, summer, they get eight weeks off, right? Yep come to Texas for summer, and they're like, holiday to time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Pick any two weeks, right? You can have two weeks vacation time. The rest of the time, you are working. So we found the dirtiest, filthiest, most manual job we possibly could, put them into that. And I remember them coming home from work, and they were so dirty. This carbide dust is like talcum powder, black carbide powder. It's heavy. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Their mum made them strip off in the utility room before they could come in the house after work. <laughs> yeah, and that process now today is in Matamoras automated. with full suits on, automated machines, like just breathing massive apparatus. breathing apparatus. But I was just sitting in a warehouse in Dallas, Texas doing it at the time. Uh, these guys would come to me and say, Dad, Dad, I thought I was going to earn like, you know, $12 an hour. And I count up and look, I've only got this amount. And I'm saying, yeah, that's life, that's tax, <laughs> social security <laughs> and all that stuff coming off of there. I would tax, also say, yeah. by the way, there's some guys out in the shop there that are married with kids and they're living on that. So 
Yeah. Better sticking at school. <laughs> I, think, I think that's, but that's also a great lesson too. I mean, it doesn't matter like kind of like, you know, what you bet. I remember when I was working offshore, I remember being out there and like bitching and moaning because like I was missing my buddy's birthday or missing El Tiempo for the yeah. night. It was like Saturday. It was like late 20s. You know what I mean? But like I was out there bitching and gr- moaning about it. I'm like, wait a minute, JP. Like I'm out here. I have what, three to five years out here. You know, yep. some of these cats have been doing this for 40 years. Like yep. who am I to bitch about this? Especially when they, they miss so much, you know, they, they're, they're such hard workers. You know what I mean? They got families. They got families. And yeah. I didn't have anything, you know, like I'm bitching because I'm missing a little uh, fajitas and margaritas. <laughs> like ridiculous, <laughs> pathetic. Yeah, but That's that, a good life lesson. And that really taught me really was around just work ethic. You know, you want to do something, you want to be part of something. You got to learn. You start at the bottom, you figure out how to do it and you progress. And, and when you fast forward from there, you know, eight years when Barnett Shield exploded, I told you, my job was cleaning, rerun 12 and a quarter yeah. roller cones. Yeah. That was it. Sit in the warehouse all day, clean them up and paint them and send them back out. Did you have this work ethic before or was it when, when you came over here and actually, uh, you he might be best to answer that question. Now look, so, um, Derek's been captain of every sports team he's ever played with. I can tell. Right. So, I mean, I would go and visit the boys when they were at Gordonston in Scotland. And Derek would say, hey, Dad, great to see you, but I've got to go because I'm responsible for coaching the rugby this afternoon. So not only was he captain of the rugby team, he was responsible for coaching them, yeah. right? Yeah, it's just, just <laughs> So things like that, you know, it's just, it, there's an inherent, there's, there's a natural tendency towards that leadership yeah. that he's always shown since he was a kid. And, uh, you know, and, and competitiveness, unbelievably competitive. Scary competitors, even with me. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, look, I'm glad I'm not competing with him. But to me, he seems like a great, great guy. I'm fine with not competing with him. I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, but the best leadership lesson that I ever got taught was hire people smarter and better than you every single day, and that's but, what I've done today at Merrill. But now, now I, I mean, you do have a lot of great people working sure. for you for y'all at Merrill. I mean, you seriously do. But I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people, their ego comes into into line whenever they do take a management role or a leadership role. I mean, their ego is like. Well, this person can't be smarter than me, or this person can't know more than me about this equipment or this, you know, this operation or something like that. And to me, I think that's you're right. You know, if you're not surrounding yourself with the smartest people that that know yeah. a lot, I mean, you're kind of doing Those yourself a disservice at that point. You know, I mean, if, if you're well, worried you're, about that, you're not a great leader. Yeah, and if you're worried, I mean, if if you if you don't want if you don't if you don't want to be you know the dumbest person in the room, then in reality, yeah. then you're making yourself work harder. Yeah, yeah. My so, goal is to have enough people that work for me. If you walk across the road tomorrow, get hit by a bus. You got three or four people ready to take over the business. They're expendable. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's but the other part be. of that is compassion. To be a great leader, you've got to have compassion as well. You've got to care about the people that are, are delivering for yeah. you and working for Absolutely. you to help you achieve your goals. So that's why within our company and, and Derek's carrying this forward, I've always been a great believer in sharing the, the benefits. You know, okay, um, I'm leading this management buy-in, but I want everybody who's helping me to have a piece of it. So the first time we did a deal, in 98, we had six or seven management shareholders. The time we did the second deal in 2005, we were up to 17 or 18. The time we did the, the third deal in 2007, we were up to 30. And by the time we sold to Sandvik, there was 52 people who were management shareholders and had very significant um, uh, life, almost life-changing financial uh, 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 gains from that transaction. And that just... So share it and spread it and get the people that, that, that you care about brought along with you and care about them. So tell me, tell me about each of them. I mean, you, you, you're naming three separate times, three, four, how many, how many times? So we bought in, in 98, we sold the first time in 2005, we sold the second time in 2007, and then we sold the third time in, in 2014, and then we bought it back in 2019. 20, 
20. Okay. How, wait, so how does that work? So, I mean, let's say you, you have the company, you sell it three times. I mean, so what happens with that is that effectively, the way you grow a company, the way I grew the company was bringing private equity to help okay. fund the growth. Okay. So uh, initial private equity company has been in it for five or six years. They want to get out. So when we sold in 2005, you approach it. we approach a sales process and we put it out to the market. Other people come in and see the growth you've achieved and believe in the growth for the future take out that private equity company, the management team all get a payout at that. Okay. The first time we sold in 2005, everybody rolled everything into the new ownership position. Okay. Then when we sold in 2007, same thing, we'd taken, and this is a crazy story. So we, we, we sold, <laughs> get to it, we sold, we sold in 2005 <laughs> for about 80 million. We'd paid 35 for the company in, in 98. So it was a good return, but not a great return. Right. But we'd built so much into the business. We were just in the cusp of explosive growth, but the private equity firm out of London had had enough at that point in time. They'd been in it for longer than they'd wanted to. Okay. So they were keen to get out. So we sold. So we sold it for 80 million. Two years later, two years later, we sold it for 360 million. Holy two years. <laughs> because the people that came in, and they're all still great friends of mine, they saw the foundation that we've built and the opportunity for massive growth. You know, they paid 80 million for it and said, here you go, Jim, there's a check for 40 million. Do what you need to do with everything else. Two years later, 360 million. Wow. Um, and, and return then, on investment. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, if you think about the timing of that, yeah, that was 2007, 2008, the financial crash. Yep. Yep. Um, we sold it from the Denver-based company to our capita in the Middle East, Bahrain-based company. All right. Heavily leveraged into Bahrain Bay development. Huge. It's kind of like... Um, like the Palm developed yeah. in Dubai, but only in, in, in Bahrain. They'd put so much money into that. They had a, a call on all their notes and stuff, and they were in Chapter 11. So I had a, an investor in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And by the way, the, the consolidating bank that had brought together the senior debt for me was Lehman Brothers. Okay. <laughs> so we had a bank that was in Chapter 11 as well. And the company's doing great through all this. I mean, the company's doing really well. Fortunately, we didn't need any further cash or any, any injection of money, we're able to manage our way through 2008, 2009, 2010, and then start growing again to where, you know, when we got to 2014 and Sandvik came knocking on our door saying, hey, we want to use this company as a foundation for a much larger LCS. Was this like so beginning of 2014? Yeah. Okay. 2014. The beginning of 2014? Yeah, yeah right at the beginning of 2014. Okay, okay. Um, uh, and so they, they pestered me until I took a meeting with them and then they came in and looked at the business and said, we want it. And I'm like, okay, well, we're not ready to sell yet. So as long as you've got a number that starts with a seven and it's not 70, <laughs> we can probably talk about it. So eventually we negotiated that deal and the value was $760 million. And that took us from being a private company to being part of a big um, multinational European and publicly traded conglomerate. I got you. Wait, 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 what's the net? What, what are we doing next? We're not doing the same thing. Something different. Well, listen, Let's I'm, 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 si I'm, I'm sitting with y'all. I'm sitting with y'all. I need y'all to, to guide me through this, the, the scotch selection HP. process. Which one? Highland Park. Is it 12 or 18? Is it Highland Park? Highland Park. Yeah, 12 or 18. I know it's there. there. I can see a 12. Let's guide this. Let's Third guide row, this. very right-hand side. Other right. Keep going. There you go. 12. 12, 12 year Highland Park. That'll be good. Unless you want something else, JP. Either that or have you, you done the edge or door at the bottom. I have not. You do have... that one. Okay, let's do That's that. Space side. Okay. Do that I like space That's the smallest distillery in Scotland. Is it really? Fact, in the pit lockery. Yeah. Yep. 
I dig it. <laughs> All right. So, so look, when we sold to Sandvik, it was an opportunity. My goal was to take this company public and make it a billion-dollar market cap business. Um, but when you look at the, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. It was public company multiples for buying a private company, and eventually the company went public. Um, the issue with that was that the, the chairman at Sandvik and the CEO at Sandvik, who had fronted this deal, they wanted to create an oil service division within Sandvik, AB, a huge big conglomerate, okay. conglomerate specialises in material science and cutting tools. You think that'd be a great starting point for oil field services and for machining and stuff like that? Sounds Some good. people do. But 12 months into it, the chairman gets moved out, new chairman comes in, the CEO gets fired or gets moved out, new CEO comes in, they don't want anything to do with oil and gas. Because that, so, that, that, that was the, the, the oh, previous, the previous exactly. exactly. They don't want anything to do with exactly. it. So the company's left to kind of languish over time there. And so right from day one, I'm starting to talk to them about, hey, can we buy it back? Can we buy it back? Can we buy this division back? What can we do? But at the end of the day, they paid an awful lot of money for it and they wanted to hold it um, to try and minimize any book losses they would have to take on it. Um, but so it took us all the way through to 2020 to convince them. And they're still a 30% shareholder in the business. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we're talking about growing the company to, you know, the billion dollar company. You know, you start off, you know, let's grow, grow, grow. A lot of people think about grow, grow, grow. It's, it's just... Let's get enough, all the equipment out there, let's sell enough product out there. But I mean, but there's also a different, I guess, um, mantra or, or mentality of kind of what you just said. It's like, hey, look, you know, like we're refocused right now. It's, we're not going to, look, we'd love to sell to everyone right now. Yep. But at the end of the day, that's not what brings quality. And that's not kind of, I mean, you can pick and choose your customers. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? There's, there's absolutely customers out there that you probably don't want to do business with, be it because of payment terms, be it just because of what they need to be happy. Or they're, I mean, some people are assholes. Some people are just they assholes. Are. They and are. Remember, life's too short to work with people. You know what I've noticed? <laughs> you know what I've noticed, though? I mean, since this whole, you know this this you know downturn and all that stuff i have noticed that there have been some people that historically in our industry that have been you know deemed as difficult yep. uh customers or difficult you know engineers to work with there's this, there's been a certain level of humility that's kind of reached across I, I guess the table during these times and people are realizing yeah they're not invincible in their jobs or in their roles and all that stuff i think everybody's learned some lessons over the last 18 months from both the the customer and the vendor relationship and the critical components of it because you know all of a sudden when you do need help you're gonna have to go ask those people that you were difficult to before right so yeah. it's, it's kind of that okay well yeah maybe you can actually provide something for me or i didn't realize you could do all oh, that today yeah. oh okay yeah that makes a bit more sense what lessons have you learned over the last yeah over the last 18 months I mean, you know <laughs> It's, wow. been a, it's been a baptism of fire for him. His first CEO gig, oh, no, right no, no, into no. COVID and oil for ice water and rig well, well, not only that, then he's rebranding, then he's bringing this in, he's bringing this in. There's a lot going on, obviously, you know, in, in, in your, you know, in, in, on your plate in the last 18 months. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting year, right? Yeah. The worst part about it is just, you know, people that get affected through downturns, right? Because right. it's the people, right? It's, it's hard decisions are made for the, the future of the business. You know, but the biggest lessons learned is that and I, I like to say this a lot, is when you when you chart a path and you think that's the direction, if something changes, be adaptable, right? You can't just say, this is what we're going to do and that's it and we're going to keep doing it. You got to adapt every single day right now because what happened yesterday doesn't necessarily happen today. Sure. Operators' behaviors, service companies' behavior changes, what was competitors, now a customer. So you got to understand the opportunity out there is very different and who, who adapts the fastest wins. Yeah, how, how absolutely. Are, how are you with that adaption, though? Because obviously, you know, you, if you have a goal, you have a vision, you have a dream and all that stuff, and, yep. you, and you're marching towards that that direction, right? Yep. 
and then something changes yep. and you have to adapt. And that kind of recalibrates your vision or recalibrates kind of the goal and all that stuff. How are you with that, with, with the constant changes? I mean, it, so I think you just have to be honest about them. I think you just have to tell the organization why things change. I mean, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you'll hear me say the word resilient a lot because the last 18, 19 months has taught us how to be resilient in my You're opinion. Right. And, and when your organization's consistently changing over 18 months, people are taking a lot on, but you know, that resilience is what creates success because people want to be part of something. And if you tell them why you're doing things, people understand because no one goes to work every day and says, I want to do a bad job today. Yeah. Normally they just don't understand what they need to do. And if you can get everybody to a point where they understand what they need to do every single day and be it's someone in the warehouse that we got to get orders out in time to an executive saying, Hey, we've got to get more revenue in this customer here and we're going to go market penetrate there. But everybody plays a role to the critical success of the business. And everybody's got a seat at the table. But that has that has to be done through communication. Hundred percent. But but and with an international company, with a glo- with a global company like that, I mean, how do you, how do you maintain communication lines about kind of what the with 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 the constant change and yeah. the constant, I guess you know, pivoting and all that stuff. I mean, how do how do you uh, so, maintain that? Uh, we have videos we do internally that get emailed out called Direct Connect, where it may be myself, you know, getting interviewed by Jamie, or it may be another executive. Anytime we bring somebody on that's in a relatively senior position, it's a get to know them. Here's who they are. Here's their family. Here's where they've worked. Because you're not going to travel that. and see that, that person, right? These so guys they have, have a great job with all of that. Honestly, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. The level of communication they, and the, we talk about personal stuff face-to-face right. is yeah. important. But what they've done with leveraging all of the electronic capabilities with all that stuff here is I use it as a model. And my other companies that I have ownership in and I'm on the board of, I refer them to Derek and Jamie and say, go listen to what these guys are doing on the social media stuff because I think it can really help you. And they come back, you know, enthused about actually doing enthused something and different. And educated. And exactly. Educated. Enthused and educated and doing something yeah. different. So yeah. these guys have done a fantastic job with that. It's just, I mean, I used to try and do, when I was there, it was it was kind of do quarterly town halls. But I would try and get to all the major offices on a quarterly basis. You know, for a month, every quarter, I was wiped out with traveling all over the world yeah. trying to make these presentations and keep everyone. Now they can do it on a seamless basis. So it's not every quarter, it's every time it's needed or every time something new happens or even every time something significant happens, you get a video out, you send it to everybody, you get feedback You rewatch from it. Wow. Yeah, it's that. Yeah. And it's, it's a monthly newsletter we send that too called The Drill Down. It's just simple highlights of what's happened in different parts of the world. It's meeting, be it a regional manager or a technical sales staff in Asia or someone in West Texas, better who they are, what they like to do, just personal details that allow you to have better relationships internally. And if you remember going back to kind of Jamie and I's last interview with you, it's everybody says people is their biggest advantage, <laughs> but it's not people, it's the relationships between people. And that could be external or internal. I feel like people say people are our biggest assets and a lot of people don't even mean it, but I mean, coming from you, I mean, the fact that, you know, you're a CEO of this global international, you know, company and all that yeah. stuff, you are growing, you're acquiring all that stuff. You seem like just such an approachable guy, like a cool cat, like someone like go in the, walk in the door and say, Hey, like this is going on. Like, it, I think yeah. that's kind of a, the, that's kind of a cool thing. Cause you know, people reach a certain level, especially at a certain size company. There's yeah. this, the ego. That gets yeah. involved. There's the there's the check the ego in at the door. Check the ego at the yeah. door. Absolutely no, but that's there's another aspect of that I think is really important. The drive is important. The skill is important of a CEO, but also the compassion. The right? compassion. Compassion. Yeah. Is really, really important. You got to feel for the people that 
are with you on the journey that you're making. And every business development's a kind of journey of sorts, right? You've got people on the bus, you're traveling in a certain direction. You've got to care about them. Derek cares about the people that are there. You know, that, I, think that, I think that's a great point, not to interrupt, but I mean, you're talking about compassion because I'm thinking about, you know, you know, several CEOs, you know, the companies I used to work for and all that stuff. You would know which one, whether you're sitting in that office or not. I'm talking about when I was, you know, the, you know, the bottom, yeah. bottom of the totem pole type of guy, but like you would know if someone gave a shit about their employees or not. You would feel yeah. it. It would echo throughout the company. It would, it would change people's uh, energy towards the company, people's commitment towards the company, uh, the drive to go above and beyond in their tasks. Just like you were talking about, everyone's got their role. If their compassion's not there, then you're you're just going to work to draw a paycheck. No, and it's it's we keep this open door policy at Barrow, and it's myself and every other executive. The door's open. Feel free to come in and talk. Yeah, you don't need to schedule an appointment. It's we're just regular people trying to do our jobs just with a different title. Absolutely, you know, it's. it's you know, I sat there and sat there and, you know, how's people's kids doing? Just people in the warehouse or with logistics or sales. And it's, you know, Austin, our Southeast U.S. manager, he sits right outside my door, which I like to kind of hear what's happening. So I'm hey, what was that you just said there? You know, tell me a little bit more about that run or what's happening there with that customer. But it's great to have that just dialogue and just be able to be part of the it. open door, yeah. the open door style. Absolutely. Look, a lot of CEOs lose contact with their end users and with their customers. So my view and Derek has taking this with them where he is, is you've always been got to be linked to your customers. You've got to always understand what their problems are, what their challenges are. You've always got to keep those relationships. I mean, I was managing director and CEO of a business and I would do customer visits for a week a month. Just go out and see customers That's all good. the time. Stay close Just to the Just look pulse. for the feedback. Just yeah, say, how exactly. are we, doing, how are we doing? What can we do better? And if they'll tell me what we can do better. I take that back and let's go action on it. That's so how, how, how are you guys, man? How are you maintaining, I guess, uh, that, that, that contact with the customers and all that stuff? I mean, obviously you, a lot of expansion, a lot of this, a lot of direction, a lot of kind of keeping, you know, keeping things in line and all that stuff. I mean, how are you maintaining personal connections with the customers? Yeah. It's just, so the, the saying is that we all have customers that we have to call on on a monthly basis, right. be just different levels of an organization or business. But my expectation is I have a few key customers that I call on every month, sure. you know, be it once a week or twice a week, whatever it is. And then, I go with BD guys, be the Jason Elrods of the world or whoever else. Oh, yeah. Go out there. Let's go make some sales calls. Today. I love that. Just just go sit in a truck and let's go see them. That's how you that. get to the truth, right? I mean, yeah. Between the customers and you, there's lots of people, but a lot of CEOs. And the message is like Chinese whispers. The customer's saying this, but the time just gets over here, part. it's something else. Right? I have I have told this antidote many times on uh, you can get on camera. It's fine. This is, we're doing this. <laughs> I have told this antidote many times on uh, this podcast. It's, 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 the, it's the top drive antidote. I remember when I was working offshore, you know, let's say – a rig, it's a new top drive. It's a piece of shit. Breaks all the time. Yeah. Fails all the time. The rig manager's going to call the superintendent. Hey, what's it going on out there? Oh, this thing sucks. It always breaks. We've only had one good, you know, yeah. one good run or whatever like that. Well, the division manager talks to the superintendent. How is it? Ah, it's okay. It's not too bad. We have some issues, but we're working them out. Yeah. You get the division manager talking. So anyway, yeah. it works its way up to the whispers. It works away. It goes up to the CEO. It's like, how how is it? It's awesome. awesome. It's great work. It's great work. <laughs> well, you know what? Put them on the put them on every rig we got. You know what I mean. So so that communication does break down. Sure, there is there are filters to that, and right. it's, it's important to get out there and, and, and speak to customers face to face, no matter what position you're in. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And it's it's it doesn't matter if you're manufacturing, if you're an engineer, and if you're an HR. Everybody should go see customers, understand the problems that they have, and understand what we can do to help solve them. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But so th this is we're going back into that the, the traits of leadership. Um, that, that Derek has in spades, 
Um, I, I go back to the childhood. You'll like this one. You wanted to hear something of Derek. I love these childhood stories. Derek's a rugby player. From the, from the time that Derek caught his first rugby ball at the age of seven and ran the entire length of the field with it, he was absolutely committed to playing rugby. And you can tell by his build, he's kind of a big guy. You know, pretty powerful. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the stories of him doing stuff like that and being involved in rugby is just unbelievable. I think he's taken the kudos from the fact that if you're in a rugby team, you can have a lot of kind of semi-talented individuals and if you can pull them all together and they can all play their part, you can have a winning team. It's not based on kind of the best stars in the world or the, you know, the highest cost players. And I think Derek really got a very valuable lesson around his sports experience, how to bring people along with you and how to build a team. If everybody's got the same strength, it doesn't work, right? So yeah. Yeah. You, you've got to be able to take to the, the workforce and realize that every person in that team from the executive management team all the way down to the guys that are working the, the laths have got a role to play and they can impact the outcome. So getting to know them and speaking with them is really important. I remember I went down to Matamoros, Mexico at that time. We had 800 people down there and I would do a walk around. I'd spend two days doing nothing but walk around the shop, talk to people and, you know, um, get getting their views on things. And this guy came up to me one day and he says, Mr. Nixon. And I'm like, oh, no, no, Mr. Nixon's my dad, it's Jim. What is it? He says, I just want to thank you. And I'm saying, well, what do you want to thank me for? He says, I've been coming here for 35 years and you're the first person that's ever asked my opinion. <laughs> and isn't, that like, amazing? isn't that amazing just by having a conversation with someone that, 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 that lifts them up so much or exactly. that makes them, yeah. it's impactful. Sure. And when we did major changes in that manufacturing plant, we had the people that were working the machines split into teams and they drove the change. Not some manager sitting in an office somewhere. It's the people on the shop floor that run That's the right. And you've got to have that throughout your organization. You've got to empower people. Because I if, always say that. Because if they don't buy into that, if they don't buy into it, you're not going to you're not going to make any traction. Exactly, exactly. And we we learned that lesson real badly. We had one lean manufacturing implementation that was driven from the top and failed dramatically. We had to wait another two years before we relaunched lean manufacturing, but we had started it from the ground up and built. The process from the ground. So is that up. why it failed? The, the, the buying yeah, wasn't the there. From them. They didn't understand why. They, all they could see is we make it more efficient, and some of them are going to lose their job. <laughs> that was their take on it, right? Yeah. So that's that's not buying, right? Exactly. There. exactly. They don't see the purpose. They don't see the drive. They don't see the reason. Sure. Why, the reason right. behind it. And the, the things that Derek and the team are doing now are just phenomenal. When when I was building a business, it was all about driving top line, because you know we we had capacity and we wanted to build. So we built out to a global organization in seventies seventies seven. 78 countries worldwide with offices and capability. And that was good for then. But now we're realizing that the, the whole market has translated and changed. And now Derek's looking at it from the point of view of which one of these do we want to actually be in? Because some of them we probably still never made any money in. And it's not a charity, right? We're there to actually get returns for shareholders. Um, so you're going through that process That's of looking it. at you just have to where do we need to be? Case by case basis, you know, look at it and just have honest conversations sure. with people. But maybe we don't need to be here anymore. And that's okay. And it's not to say people are going to lose their jobs, but it's to say we might shift resources to somewhere where we make more money. Yeah. Because, you know, resources, you know, you've only got so many of them. Yeah. You know, it's not just a, an endless checkbook of just hire, hire, hire. So it's how can you get the most bang for your buck with what you have today or the people you have today? And sometimes that's moving people's roles, changing roles, or changing locations. So, so wait, how long, so how long did you uh, lead the company for? Um, so I left in, in 2015. I'm not the engineer. So five years yes, before yes. we bought it back. Okay. And, uh, I moved to Sandvik and was running their um, Sandvik Ventures group of companies. So what's it like for you stepping in kind of this, this role as CEO? Obviously, you've been there since 2020. 
it's weird how time flies yeah. since, yeah. since since the uh, pandemic. But I mean, stepping into this role, you know what yep. I mean? You've, you've, you've got, obviously, I'm not going to say big shoes fill because I don't think you don't strike me as a person that's competing with. No. Pre, you, 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 to me, it's like, okay, well, I got this role. I'm going to come here and try to shake things up, make, make, make yep. stuff work. What's that like for you, I guess, coming in on, and on such a, uh, it sounds like a great uh, history on a barrel and yep. all that stuff. And, you, and you're coming in, you know, you're the CEO when, d- during, you know, when the oil industry is at all time low, pessimistic, miserable, everyone hates us. No one needs oil and gas. We're bad. We're, we're the devil and all stuff. whatever all that is, yep. you're coming in, you're making all these changes and all stuff. So, yep. What, what is that like to you? I guess the initial process. I mean, do you, do you second guess yourself or do you jump into it? I don't it? think you what can because I don't think you have time to second guess. I think you're making decisions with the, the information you have. And I think one of the things we recognize is that an organization this size, you're not always going to have all the information to make a perfect decision. Right. You're having to use your resources and people around you. And you're also having to use your gut at times because what do you, you just don't what do you, have what do you, all of it. What do you rely on more? Do you think do you think having the information or the gut, the gut instincts is more I think important? it's a good split depending on the situation. And, and it, the other part is the team, right? Yeah, having good sounding boards internally and having good conversations. And look, my team and I, while we agree on a lot of things, we don't always agree on everything. And But you know you what? You don't want to. You don't want to, but when we say this is what we're going to do, every single one of them would run through a wall to make it happen. Right. But that's part of having that good team and having an understanding we see things differently. And that's okay. You know, so it's I think it's, it's a good split between that gut and with the information. And you're always just trying to make the best decision, right? right. Like I said earlier, no one goes to work to make a bad decision. And, 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 and that's a good point. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody about, you know, he's dealing with something in a relationship and all this stuff. And he's like, what should I do? do I like, is, what's the right decision? I'm like, there is no right decision here. Yeah. There's never any right decision. It's a, it's a decision. Yep. Whether it has better results or worse results, that's up to you. That's, that's personal. Yep. And the worst thing you can do is, no, make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. So no action is worse than any bad decision in the world. He's been brought yeah, up in right. the philosophy of a bad decision made quickly is better than a good decision made too late. I like that. Because if you've got a flexible uh, and agile organization, if you've made a bad decision, you correct real quickly. You see it quickly. Yeah, and you you, you quickly. correct real quickly. Yeah. So I think that's the key is that if you can get enough data to base your decision, maybe 60, 70% on data, then you've got a gut feel from your knowledge and understanding of the, the market and the industry, make the decision and go with it. Because, you know, perfection's the, the, the enemy of good, right? I mean, you've yeah, got to make a decision and move forward. Carry if it it's with wrong, you. make another decision. Exactly. No, so flexibility and agility. That is something that I face in my life all the time is the analysis paralysis. Yeah. It's like, oh, I want more information to make a decision. Whether oh. it's whether it's honestly something like, you know, microphones yeah. or for, for a podcast or whether it's, uh, oh, how does this slide look for this? But uh, analysis paralysis and actually just waiting too long to make it. So just do it. Like, just, who gives a shit? Just do it. Yeah, and if it was wrong, okay. I <laughs> yeah, learned. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't know. I'm human. I'm smarter today than I was yesterday. That's why I tell my daughter. So, it's like, I expect you to make mistakes. Yeah. I expect you to make wrong decisions. Absolutely. I, I want you to, but let's sure, talk about you it. Learn. You learn more from mistakes. You never do from the right decision. You're right. But so Derek's inherited the mantle of the Nike man. The That's Nike man? was called in the business. Just do it. The Nike man, just do it. <laughs> I dig that. So, okay. So, so, so what are you kind of seeing, I guess, you know, you know, Derek takes, you know, over, he's, you know, leading this charge, leading the rebrand. What are you kind of seeing that, that is kind of that you're surprised about? How about oh, that? You know, I mean, besides everything, <laughs> I mean, my good, no, I'm joking, but that's great. I, I so, dig that laugh. He's, he's a racing lot. green man. Though. Yeah. Oh, he lives and dies by the race. Every single car he has is racing green. That is it really? Yeah. That, that lavender, honestly, I dig it. I think it's a clean color. I think it's sharp. It's so, so he's got one fan. Here. <laughs> so 
I think there's so much going on and there's so much change happening and so much alignment to the changing world that I'm just so proud primarily of the management team he's brought together. It's just so refreshing to see someone sitting at the top of an organization saying, everybody can be smarter than me, I don't care. But in fact, that's what I want, right? I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room, I just need to have a good relationship with the smartest guy in the room, right? That's right. Um, so I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of the way he's really driven cash and cash management, which was something that, that when I was running a company, it was all about EBITDA, and EBITDA is kind of a pseudo cash. But we never cared if we, if we, as long as we were growing and building EBITDA, we didn't care if we generated cash. Okay. Because that was what we were rewarded on, the EBITDA number. So the cash generation these guys have done is just phenomenal. They've done a great job with it. It's allowing us to do some acquisitions that are transformative for us. Um, the Derek and the team have actually sourced and have been working hard to get delivered. So when you look at the rebranding, you look at the contract manufacturing, I mean, Derek's doing business now, trusted business, with people that when I was there as CEO, I hated them because they were the competition, right? I mean, yeah. oh my God, Baker Hughes and Halliburton and Slumberjay, because that's how we I can't talk to you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would I would use guerrilla tactics to take a little bit of share from each of them, and they wouldn't even notice it. To build, I mean, we built the company from nothing to eight or ten percent global market share in drill bits and, right. and primary cement equipment. Um, but so to see that dramatic shift to where. These are our customers now. We're going to serve them. And I think the whole mantra around consolidation, like it, people say to me, so why all of my investments are all energy investments? What the hell are you doing? Why are you investing in energy? I say, well, let me think about this. I can see maybe four or five decades of consolidation and consistency. Yep. Compare that to, you know, to the, the, the tech industry when you've got three years of potential exactly yeah, ups and downs. Up and down. So I see a long-term stable business in oil and gas um, and and I, I was just with Richard Spears, a very good friend of oh, mine, yeah, okay. presented to one of my companies last week in, uh, at a, a strategy meeting. And his view was that consolidated views, energy demand for oil and gas is going to grow at 1% over each of the next How is there such years. a disconnect with that, with, with everyone right now? Now, you look at the alternative energy, it's growing, but you can't do without oil and gas. So we've got to find ways of taking advantage of this. We've got to find ways of capturing carbon or reducing carbon or technology that takes that away. And I know this industry will do that because every challenge that's ever been thrown at it, would solved. Yeah, right? absolutely. And we'll solve this one as well. You know, um, one of my businesses actually has uh, waste disposal wells along the Texas Gulf Coast. Yep. Wouldn't it be great to get carbon and inject the carbon into those waste wells? I mean, that could be a great opportunity. Yep. Derek's working real hard on the ESG side of actually becoming carbon neutral in a manufacturing business. That's unheard of. But I think there's a plan to where we can actually get to that. Um, so uh, it's just, it's a whole new world of challenges. It's a different world. You've got to find the opportunity and the circumstances that you can control, right? I mean, ESG, what is it? that's sustainability. That's environment, it's the environmental yeah. footprints. We've been doing this for years in, in our industry, generations, if you will, in our Absolutely. industry. It's just a different term right now, ESG. It's just more front and center. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's being Look, really put under the spotlight and, and it's going to be one of the things that you have to do as a business. It's a non-negotiable. Well, we've been doing it, but I think we need to communicate um, it more. With, correct. Right. Oil and gas businesses will be differentiated in the future. Their value will be differentiated on their ability to deliver an ESG. I kind of feel like not the future. I kind of feel like that's today. Uh, well, it's getting there today. It's getting, I mean, it's getting closer Even more there. as we go forward. Um, I mean, at the moment, there's, there's not a lot of buyers for oil and gas service companies, right? No. Nope. I mean. Not. That, that's the reality of they're it. They're starting to get the amnesia now, though. All that money's on the sideline. We're so good at amnesia. And as profitability starts to ramp up, 
that money is going to come back in. But yep. one of the key factors of that money coming back in, and one of the one of the decisions, the decision points is where are you at with ESG? ESG. Can we justify being back in this business? Yeah. So I think ESG is incredibly Might important. Multiple. Might oh, give you one more. Maybe two. Maybe two more. Yeah. So when do I, I'm kind of picking this uh, vibe up and correct me if I'm wrong. So I kind of feel like, you know, you, obviously, you know, you've had this leadership role for so long, right? At Vero and all that stuff. You, you're not in the leadership role, you know, anymore as, you know, chief executive officer yeah. anymore. So I kind of feel like you like watching your son kind of perform and kind of getting feedback. I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but do you only provide a, advice or you know guidance or whatever like that like if he's like hey what do you think about this idea or, right. i want to use it as a soundboard dad like absolutely. Well, is, that, is that kind of what it's like absolutely and that's that's the role that i play i've got the best job of my entire life here i'm on the board of five companies and i have a direct line to the five ceos and they call me and ask for advice and you know i never realized the crushing responsibility of being a ceo until you don't have it and suddenly <laughs> The world's a lighter place because <laughs> somebody else is responsible. Every right. decision's not as heavy. <laughs> yeah. So I just love that. So I've got a good gauge. I've got five CEOs that I work with, and I, I, I try and give them all as much time as I possibly can and dedicate the same amount. He probably gets a wee bit more, you know. Of course. Um, of squeaky course. wheel and all, right? Yeah. But yeah, so my role is one I'd advise to bounce ideas off and come and say, hey, we've never seen this before. What do you think? Well, I've been in this business for 40 years. There's not a lot of things I haven't seen. And I've known what works. So maybe I can give a little a bit of advice around those problematic areas where so, it's difficult because you've never done it before. So speaking about being in the industry for 40 years and all this stuff, I mean, obviously from the past, you know, eight, I don't even know how many months it was. Let's say March 2020. I've asked him what lessons he's learned in this process. Obviously, it's he's, he's, he's spoken to that. What lessons do you think that you've learned? Obviously, I, mean, I feel like this is just a huge shock to not just our industry, but the world, right? What's going on right now? Um, what's what, What's transpired? But what have you kind of, what lessons have you learned, I guess, in this whole, I guess, past 18, 19, 20 months that, that, right. that you can, man, if I, whatever that looks like? I think the biggest lesson is accept the reality of the situation. You get a lot of people that don't want to accept the reality of it. And if you don't accept the reality, you can't guide yourself. That's great. Yeah. So accept reality of the situation. I mean, we saw COVID coming in probably January. Yeah. And, and so the businesses I'm involved with really reacted very, very swiftly to it. With Varo, we were very lucky. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, it's a strange thing to say that we bought the company when COVID shut the country down, but we were very lucky because we had a really significant plan of actions we were going to take when we bought it. And when COVID hit, we could just accelerate all of them and put them in place really, really quickly. So we were agree. ahead of most other people who didn't have that, who are running their businesses and it's going along as normal. Right? There's a lot of denial. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's and a lot of denial. Oh, I just, I don't know. Once things get back to the way they were, once the, this will ever go back to the way it was? No, and it probably will go back slope the way. Well. That's a slippery slope, that yeah. denial, yeah. because you're just pushing off the inevitable of and then, and losses. Then, and then you get frustrated at the inevitable change that comes, yep. and, that's, and that just kind of adds another log to the fire. Absolutely. So accept the reality I of the situation that. and look for the opportunity, because every situation and every change brings with it opportunity, right? So where's the opportunity in this changed world that we're moving towards and find a way of, of, of embracing the opportunity that exists within the uncontrollable component. We always talk about that. Worry about what you can control. Well, guess what? The stuff that's uncontrollable, look for the opportunity and look for the, the, the Well, the, how do you, the, how, how do you find opportunity in all this noise? I mean, how do you find opportunity in, in, in the downturn? Oh, the we peasant. find the opportunity of rebranding. Yeah. And that's a good point. Third yeah. Manufacturing and a rebrand. 
during the biggest downturn. Right. You know why? But we're trying to solve a business problem. So you got a business problem here. You got a big manufacturer. Like, what are we going to do with this? Because yeah. we need to feed the beast. Because if not, you're underabsorbed. Let's build other people's stuff. That's a great idea. Let's do that. But then it's like, yeah, but let's, just be open let's to build that. competitor stuff. Yeah, but you know, even better idea. You know, but that's just maybe we should do that. Let's go ahead and do it then. Okay. Look, relationships. I think, I think this is a great idea. Yeah. Relationships are an alignment of needs, right? Yeah. So when you think about any relationship, there's needs point. on both sides, and you've got to fulfill the needs on both sides there. So the right. industry has a need for consolidation because everybody's got too much capacity. Yep. We've got a big plant down in Mexico, which is world class, right? And so they need to shed capacity. We've got capacity. Let's find ways of bringing it together and break the barrier so we can do it. And yeah. This team have done a fantastic job of that. Really yeah. incredible. In the days, we were solving our business problem and solving someone else's at the same time. Yeah. It's a win-win. It is. Exactly. Anytime you get a win-win, people are happy. I think but that's what makes lasting relationships. I think it's so funny. I when, when, Whenever I invite people to an event or something like that. I was like, oh, I'm not going to that. You know, Derek's my competitor. I'm like, dude, have you not really? learned anything in the past 18 months? It doesn't matter where you're at because you could always be somewhere else tomorrow. And you never know where you might be. You never know out. you might be. You never know what that relationship, because let's yeah. say, let's say I'm, uh, I'm selling what you're selling. You're not competitors. Oh, I'm not going there. Derek's there. You know what I mean? One of the best companies out there, CEOs. I can't go out there. But the thing is, though, you don't know because I might leave my role and go somewhere else. Whereas, actually, I might need you to help this, or or you might need me to help. So, even so, think about it this way: I might learn something from someone else that's oh doing God. it differently. Exactly. Like put the ego away and just say, hey, "We're all here to get sure. better, right?" I mean, yeah. look, we're all. You should be in competition with yourself and with others. I get that also. But at the end of the day, to not go to something because of competition, there, you're right. You can always learn something. You always build, a and you don't know who you're going to be dealing with tomorrow. Exactly. Ever. It's a small world and a super smaller small oil field. Are you yeah. excited about the future of the oil field? Talk I'm, to me. I'm excited about the future of the oil field. I think the consolidation opportunity is immense, and I think the companies that survive through this and embrace the changed world that we're living in yeah. and also look for the peripheral opportunities around ESG, carbon storage, carbon capture and storage, anything that we can do to actually enhance our ability to continue to produce oil and gas but not destroy the the environment while we're doing it is going to be great and there's going to be a world of opportunities out there. I think this is a point in time for the oil and gas industry where it's probably an inflection point that could make it better than it's ever been. Okay. So my big thing though, if it is better than it's ever been, which I feel like it is, I feel like the technology, I feel like the people, um, I think we've maybe learned a lesson um, about spin. Maybe, I don't know. I so. Goldfish memories. I don't uh, know. It's, it's tough. The oil field has, I mean, I filled my car up earlier. It was four dollars a gallon. I know. I know. <laughs> it made me smile, though. I know. I know. You see that, but but I mean, so so you're seeing all this stuff um, um, occur right now. You know what I mean? Um, I don't even know where the hell I was going with this, uh, but I, where did I start? You know, Excited really about the, the, the how we really changed? Yeah, I mean, so so my my question is though. I mean, you, you think we've really changed as an industry, but but if we have changed, my okay, this is where I was going. My big thing is though, we need to learn how to communicate those changes, Absolutely. not just to our industry, but to the people that are on the outside of our industry. Yeah, it's 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 showing the perspective from the other side and showing it in a way that people can take the information in, because all they see is the negative stuff. Oh well, it's bad, it's uh, bad for the environment, yeah. but. Let's talk about the good things we do along with why we're doing them. Let's educate the public around everything petroleum or gas does because it's kind of the stigma, right? It Only is the a bad part. I know. But I know. So the, so the other part of that, um, JP, is this, that, that when you think about it, high oil and gas prices, people hate. It's the best thing we could do for the environment. 
high oil and gas prices. Why? Not because people are paying more and we might make some more money, but because that high oil and gas price will be what spurs investment in alternative energies and builds the alternative energy space. That's a great I point. Mean, you can't do anything unless you can finance it. So to get to all of these alternative projects and get stuff, I mean, I was reading a, a, a bit about the Northern Lights um, development in the way up in the north of Norway, where they've got a they've got a forty foot container that is able to pull about four thousand tons of carbon out the air. It okay. just runs and sucks in air and pulls carbon out, and they, they That's collect really cool. it. The only problem with that is four thousand pounds is only about nineteen cars worth, but it's a star, right? It's yeah, a miniature star. Somewhere that you can build up to some sort of commercial capability. So that's the sort of opportunities we're looking for. And that's what we need to be doing as an industry. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, I would love to have a combustion engine, a, a, a internal combustion engine. I love cars, I love internal combustion engines, but I'd love to have one where you put in 10 gallons of fuel or 20 gallons of fuel, and you pull out, you know, 60 pounds of carbon from another tank somewhere, and you can dispose of it somewhere safe where it doesn't destroy the atmosphere. Now that seems like pie in the sky, but this industry and this has the capability of delivering well, on stuff like I mean, that. every every piece of technology we have today started from exactly. Star Trek. Look at, I mean, so I always I always refer to... Going in the back to, of a, yeah, a yeah. cigarette bag. I mean, seriously, I mean, yeah. I, I refer to, look at NASA, and I love NASA. I was I, I, I was a kid when they landed on the moon, right? All it right. was just like, oh my God, this is so cool. And you see Apollo 13 and Tom Hanks trying to navigate back towards yeah. Earth using his thumb. And then you look at what Elon Musk is doing, sending unqualified people to space and bringing the rocket back to Earth. And landing it, yeah. And landing it. And you're like, oh my God, what a technological change. How can we embrace that technology in our piece of the, of the world and in the industry and the environment and adapt that I mean, I think part technology of just, to do better? I think part of that is just, you know, first off, start dreaming. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, look, look at Dick Tracy. Remember back in like the, whatever that was, 30s, 40s, I don't even know when it was, <laughs> but he had the walkie-talkie watch. And everyone thought that was so and we cool. we got the walkie-talkie watch. We have the walkie-talkie watch now. I mean, <laughs> the that's the thing. You, you start, you know, you start throwing those ideas out right there. I mean, those aren't, whether they're a pie in the sky or a dream and all stuff, you got to start with you a dream. Start and that's how you, you, that's the how vision, you get there. Right? And they all started somewhere. And I think that, that in artificial intelligence and the, the capability that exists now is just so far beyond any of our imaginations that we've got to find a way of harnessing it in this industry in order to uh, uh, save the world. You feel like you're on top. You, you feel like you're on talk on top of this like tech stuff or like this uh, this uh, AI stuff. I feel like I, honestly I'm learning about it. Sure. But I'm very far behind on it, which is fine. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay not. I'm, I am okay not knowing stuff about stuff. I'm fine with it. Look, that's how I live my life. I think I know a little bit about it, but I think it's a powerful tool that adoption rate will be important yeah. for running businesses in the future. I think it will allow you to make better decisions faster. Right. We talked about earlier of right, fail fast. That might right. help you so, fail faster. Or so here, faster. here's a data point that brings that into perspective. Yeah. Apollo 13 had less computing power than your average saloon car today. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> right? Think about yeah. that. That's incredible, right? So how do we harness all of that? Uh, and try and solve the real problems, which is the world cannot do without hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. Anyone who tells you it can is totally wrong. I agree. Right? So how do we find a way of doing less damage? Because you can't shut it off initially. You've got to find ways of doing less damage and progressively remove, progressively move towards being carbon neutral right. and being able to use hydrocarbons without adding to the pollution that already exists in the world. So how do we do that? I mean, I don't know the answer to it, but I know... I want to read as much as I can and talk to as many people right, as I, mean, I can. You bring and it up, ways you get the conversations going, and high oil price will finance that. I like that. That's a good way to look at that. So, 
we're out of uh well we're kind of out you know oil's at what 83 right now or something yeah. like that well what's the next steps for y'all because before we talked to you it was the rebrand now yep. well, where, where y'all going now and y'all actually launched a new website too yep new website so yeah, like, it's not new anymore but it was it couple, was new yeah yeah so so what, what's what's the next steps you were telling me 2020 was survive 2021 is uh is realigned fixed. Yeah, and fixed, fixed. find and the problem 2022 is explosive growth explosive growth so organic and acquisition really yeah yeah, so we got a few irons in the fire today at where we stand. And yeah. Watch hopefully we have some exciting news before the end of the year. I love it. Every time I sit with them, there's always like a, there's always like a teaser Just to throw trailer. the teaser. That's how I get invited back again. Jay there's Z. always a teaser trailer with, yeah. with Derek. I love that. You know, it's, it's, but no, I think it says it well, right? Businesses don't go out of business for, for a bad EBITDA. They run out of cash. Right. Did an awesome job last year collecting cash and just building cash in the business. We started this year. We got a lot of new people in different seats, so we're driving a lot of efficiency, a lot of process. Again, understanding who we are. Next year, it's time to grow. Let's let's ride the wave. So up. this is actually kind of. I mean, obviously, you know, twenty twenty uh, stepping into CEO. That's kind of uh, an interesting challenge because there's challenges not really many people have faced. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so now you're kind of. I feel like that was kind of like getting your house in order. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You're, you're trying to get this in order. And now you're kind of uh, kind of in the step to kind of you know start opening the doors and kind of getting out there yeah. and running. Yeah, fundamental changes in our business happened from a footprint perspective. Be it you know we shut down some manufacturing in Aberdeen, we're closing down a manufacturing facility in France, we're consolidating manufacturing space in Matamoros, we've closed down four offices in the U.S. You know it's it's again understand you where you are, right? Know who you want to deal with, right? Get your house in order. And right now is the time to start growing. And so you're just ready to get out of the We're ready to get out there, absolutely. You know, we see, uh, I have a pseudometric that I use of how the health of the business and onboard new customers. It's how many new MSAs I sign a week. Okay. <laughs> you know, because I sign all of them, right? So it goes through, it comes through and you sign it. So when you see three or four new MSAs coming in every week. It's exciting. It means we're growing. Right. It means we're taking share. You know, in places historically where we haven't done well, we're onboarding a lot of new customers. Our PDC product line right now is delivering a lot of value for end users in West Texas. Right. More so than we've ever done in the past. And growth here in the U.S. is coming from not the major players. It's coming no, from it's the small not. players. Yeah. So major players average, aren't getting average, out to work. As new MSAs for one and a half years. Yeah. Right? So think about that. That's a, that's a company coming into this market that's got one and a half rigs running effectively. Yeah. So, you know, that's where the growth is coming from. And the more MSAs you sign, the more you get them yeah, on board, opportunity. the better you're going to do as, as you go through 2022. Um, 2022. Yeah, it's a big year for us. I mean, you know, it's uh, we've got some pretty big big Q4 ahead of us this year, but next year it's it's we see this runway. It's time to Just get, get after it. it. Yeah. And so uh, I guess on my, I, I'm not asking you to speak to the company that you sit on the board and also, but are you kind of noticing kind of a... Uh, is there optimism kind of going around the, the, the other people that you're speaking with? Is, is, is it kind yeah, of the, get the house in order and blow and go? Yeah, I think uh, uh, there's generally speaking across all of the companies, there's five oil and gas companies I'm on the board of, and they're all in a position where they've done a lot of cost cutting, they've done a lot of consolidation, they've done a lot of realignment, and the market's starting to come back and they're starting to accelerate with that and, and, and ride that wave back up again. Um, but you, you can't just ride the wave. You've got to do things differently and introduce new products, right. new services, new capability if you really want to grow. If you just grow up and down with the market, then you're, you're just kind of yeah. doing nothing. So you're not, you're you've got to be in control of your destiny. Exactly. So you've got to be introducing new stuff as well as, as riding the market wave back up again. The combination of those two things will be the, the differentiator between the really successful companies and the kind of also runs. Yeah. I, I think, you. you know, to, to put a, 
a perspective out there of you know the biggest challenge the industry will face in the short term over the next six months it's still supply chain oh yeah i mean that is tough so dude honestly like i'm being very serious like the whole supply like people are talking about labor shortage right yeah. i get it no one wants to work it's tough to get people out people be jaded by the industry whatever that looks like but the 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 it's the it's the equipment shortage that is that's the problem that's scary raw materials to are me farther out than to me ever that, seen. to me that's scarier just because like uh, equipment yeah sure I'll, I'll I'm gonna pay this person this yeah. much and I'll maybe get a couple quality people on yeah. but when it comes to the equipment side of things that part is scary your hands are tied I mean you you're there's nothing you can do no, you're waiting for boats to come in you're waiting for mills well, to produce I think you're, you're waiting quoted, for forges to be made yeah Daddy you quoted at the last meeting that a container coming from the far east. Used to be three thousand dollars. Twenty thousand. How much now? Thirty grand. Thirty grand. Dude, I was talking. I was talking to my buddy at um, uh, a wellhead company. He said, "Yeah, the containers were two grand coming from wherever they were, and now they're like twenty. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. It's insane. Have you seen how many boats are parked off the coast of California right now? Oh yeah, waiting on a load because there's no truck drivers. I think I think there's a hundred day a hundred day uh, time right now, and I think uh, Texas is offering uh, sell your stuff here. Yeah. And it'll be like, you know, it's, it's a two-week journey it's, it's, here. It's unbelievable. It's, 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 but it's Gatorade. You can't buy certain colors of Gatorades in certain stores anymore. <laughs> like, people are worried about steel. I mean, uh, that should you, be a, Well, first off, if you can't get Gatorade, how am I supposed to get steel well, sometimes? Well, I don't worry about the color. I just look for the Gatorade Zero. <laughs> you can't get that anywhere. <laughs> first off, I'm blown away that you're bringing this to my attention. Now, I'm going to start looking for this shit. I don't want to start looking for this shit. But, but I think, I think honestly, people are talking about labor shortage being a big issue. I think, I really think the equipment shortage is the scarier side of it the is. business. Not only equipment, but raw materials as well. Yeah. The raw materials, the raw materials that we take to transform into equipment. Lead I'm going to run new place today. We'll get in 12 months. Damn. I've also, I mean, I mean there's, there's even companies out there, like, unless they have, you know, a, three or four drilling rigs that they're not going to get equipment. It's, I don't care if you have plans to drill three wells with one rig or whatever that is. You're not going to get the not equipment. You're going to get the premium stuff. No, it's crazy. No, no, you're not going to get the stuff. Yeah. There's a reckoning coming, I think, because all of the oil service companies, including us, through COVID, we're in survival mode, which means we're running down inventories right. and we're trying to drive cash out of already invested money. And that combine that with consolidation and reduction in um, manufacturing resources, how do you build that back up again real quickly? You can. There's a, there's a lag in all of that. The other direction, yeah. spend. Yeah. Especially for when sure. lead times are so far out. You're buying stuff now that you're not going to get for nine months. So yeah. So there's the potential for materials shortages. And I don't mean raw materials. I mean materials to drill shortages. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the fact that you have to plan that far out. Oh. I mean, and, and obviously yeah. there's not a lot of faith in kind of how the world is uh, today. You know what I mean? So when you're buying something like that, that far out, and you know, and, you know how much customers like to commit that long ahead. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they love, that's their favorite thing to do is commit. They love locking. Not even in that, front. but internally, people love to have a budget and say, "This is what we're going to order next year." But that's the thing, though. I mean, there, there's there, our industry always changes, whether it's whether it's drilling programs, whether it's you know, find an efficiency. Or and next thing you know, yeah, every case size. So it's, it's it's definitely an interesting time right now. So what what else what else guys you want to talk about right now? So wait, where, where's your brother at? Jamie's here in uh, in Houston, so he's doing the completion. So the slip slipstream, slip extreme, frack plug drill out bits. By the so way, which is one of our most most successful products. Yeah. Slipstream is incredible. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. Dominated the market. Yeah, we're last five years, fifty percent market share. Now. So is he is he with Vero too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How's that feel? It's good. 
No, how's it, how's, how's it feel though as a bro? That's <laughs> always good. Oh, man. My brother and I have an awesome relationship. That's huh? awesome. Well, yeah. you got to admit, my brother's looked after me many years of my life when I was younger as well. So. They went to boarding school together, right? Yeah. So James is two years older than Derek. Yeah. And so uh, Jamie was a, is the big brother, yeah. right? He still and was is. always there to keep him out of trouble because yeah. he needs to be kept out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you, always, you, always, you always need that, 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 that smarter person in the room to be, yeah, surround yourself with smarter people. That's hey, it. You don't need Absolutely. to be doing this. Let's yeah, get out the, of here. the voice of reason. Exactly. Right? And James is doing great. He's he's been through a lot of the hard times out in the field there. I mean, going to try and visit customers that have got nothing to do, and oh, going yeah, to try and visit shutting down. And you know, but he's done very very well through all of that, and will continue to do well. He's a a, a great guy and uh, really enjoys what he's doing. You ever right. mess with each other? Oh, all oh the yeah, time. All, the time. all the time. I mean, it's it's weird though how you talk about the how quick time's moving right now. My boys, my twin boys, just turned ten yesterday. Yeah. It I remember seems just like having them in the hospital not long Isn't ago. Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah, the double digits and like they're like little dudes though. It's you remember like they're they kids, oh, the little dudes that knows everything about NFL. when they're when they're like four or five, they're kids, and then, yeah. and then next thing you know, my daughter's eight years old, and like yeah. the other night we're watching Hocus Pocus. Yeah, oh, we watched that the other night too. And they're asking for virgin blood. She's like, "What's a virgin?" <laughs> so we started the talk. She's like, "So they just rub their penises together. That's how babies made." I was like. <laughs> Well, not really. So here we go. And I'm like, you're you're my little princess. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're my four year old. Like yeah, you're yeah. this little thing. So uh, it's it's crazy how time flies. Yeah, my wife does a, a hell of a job, Heather, putting up with and just managing the kids and managing the house. But I walked into the conversation the other day and she was going to Heather, when will I get boobs? I'm like, what did you just say? Oh, boobs. Oh, boy. No. The conversation. You're not getting them. Don't the conversation worry about of boobies are is a big conversation in my house with Evelyn. Yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. like well, Evelyn, take your chill out. Be a kid. Yeah, be a kid. No, I tell my granddaughter, Bliss, that she's very, very lucky to have a dad like Daddy because if she was mine, she'd be locked in a cupboard. Oh, <laughs> I know, but we, yeah. we got to be the cool dads. I'm fortunate that. that she has two older brothers, Ace and Connor, that yeah. are one year above her in school. So an entire school oh, career. She's, she's got two older brothers. So now she has to go to the cool. college, the university that, that they yeah. go to, to to keep the protection yeah, exactly. going. That's, you know, extra pocket money. You just make sure your sister's behaving. Make sure she's safe. Just report back to base. I think that's, I think that's just so awesome. The, the fact that the company that, you know, you built and sold, you know, several times on stuff. And now you're kind of taking a step back and, you know, now you had your son kind of uh, in, well, the, in the ranks. Dedic and this management team have the potential to do much more with it than I ever did. And that's what excites me about that it. Is, I mean, that's got to be exciting. Incredible. I mean, I mean just I, I to mean, see I'm, them running with the ball. I've met many people over at Vero and all that stuff. And we had Jamie on uh, before. Yeah. And stuff. yeah. Like, it was frustrating talking to Jamie because he was so smart. You know what I mean? Like it was like I'm sitting in the room, I'm like, oh shit, Derek, chime in because I have no idea what to respond. Because he, he very smart, capable people that so. that that not only have the gift of gab, but it's also one of those things where they 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 have the bigger yeah, filters leadership. on. Yeah, yeah, they have the bigger filters on. That's but awesome. the whole team's like that. I mean, Jamie, Jamie's an outstanding guy, but the whole team's yeah. like that. You got I mean, Brad, Elda, Sean, Jordan. And it's just Elda, the HR lady, is just phenomenal. I mean, she's just like such a smart person. And yeah. Jordan, I mean, Jordan's in, in Dubai, yeah, right? That's good. We call it the lonely role, right? The lonely role. One executive overseas. Oh, that's the, probably the best role to have. I've been that. Best and worst, right? Place the best food over there? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, but it's, it's, you know, I am extremely proud of my team, extremely proud of the organization of where we started, and, mm -hmm. you know, March 2nd last year to where we are today. I know. You know, it's, it's, it's gone by and just a click of the fingers, but it's been a hell of a ride so and, far and we're excited about the future. And the good part is your father's proud of you. 
absolutely. And so couldn't be more proud. I'm proud of you, Derek. I appreciate that. So, um, so gentlemen, do you have anything else to, uh, to, to chime in about or anything like that? So, uh, so, so wait, you're, you're in Florida. How long are you in, uh, the, in uh, Texas for? So I'm going to Fort Worth the, the, this afternoon for a board meeting okay. with one of my companies there, Mustang Extreme Energy uh, Solutions. And so, uh, uh, that'll be a good one. They're doing really well. And I'm looking forward to the, the board meeting there in Fort Worth tomorrow and, uh, then back to Florida. And then I'm heading to, um, Palm Springs for the U.S. Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. I do a lot of entrepreneurial work. And really? So, yeah. I was chairman of the judging group for the World Entrepreneur of the Year for three years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really enjoy entrepreneurship, and, and so I like to be engaged any way that I can. So would you consider that, yourself an entrepreneur? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Serial. Yeah. What's, what's, what's an entrepreneur? Someone that finds opportunity, whatever it lies, right? Opportunity that other people can see. Well, how, well so, let me, people, so let me ask you a question. I mean, we're, we're sitting here listening on this, and it's a, how do you how do you adjust your lenses to actually find opportunity when that people don't see? Right. So you you've got to have uh, you've got to have an open mind and be willing to actually take information in. I mean, a lot of people say if it's not in my if it's not in my um, wheelhouse, blinkered wheelhouse, yeah. I don't want to know about it. Yeah. Real entrepreneurs are looking for opportunity in everything that they touch and everything that they see on a daily basis. And I think that's the difference, the openness to actually take opportunity. A lot of people pass opportunity because uh, they're too narrow-minded, and too blinkered on where they're yeah. looking for it. So having an open mind and being willing to accept um, uh, information as it comes to you and then look beyond the, the information that you get to see what you can do with it. Because that's about it. I mean, entrepreneurs take ideas that other people have ignored or bypassed and find a way of applying yeah, it to something in the yeah. world, right? So that, that to me, is the key to being an entrepreneur. And it's not necessarily new technology. It's no, maybe it can a new be process or just a new way of doing business. I mean, there's so many different ways. I mean, I mean me, get, getting customers in a room together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's, something, it's, it's something simple that's needed. Yeah. I have one more question for the entrepreneurial side of things. Not for me, just for other people out there. <laughs> but this is one of the best entrepreneurs I've ever met. Here. I'm proud I'm of Derek. Yeah. I'm proud of Derek. Always have been, always will. Sorry, I what, how do, I always interrupt. That's my move. <laughs> Ask my wife. Um, so we're, what, when entrepreneurs fail, right? When they, when they go out and they try something, they fail. What do you see kind of as, uh, as the reason as, but either the reason why they fail or what they could do to, uh, I guess, position themselves a little bit better. Right. I know, I know it's such a broad question. It's a broad question, but there's two main sources of that. The first one is, Entrepreneurs that, that can't see failure coming, they're so committed to it because it's inherent in their character to not give up. Yeah. They can't see failure coming. That's the first thing. The second part of that, I think, is entrepreneurs that, that want to continue being an entrepreneurial organization when the company's too big for that. Entrepreneurs typically are the driving force of everything that happens within a company. And companies grow to the extent where you've got to systemize and processize the stuff below you in order to make it happen automatically. Entrepreneurs that are resistant to that ultimately will not fulfill their total capability. That's a total. great point. Yeah. Never thought about that. So I, if you look at the life cycle of a company, the, the go-go part of it, the, the, the upslope on the bell curve is when the entrepreneur is driving everything, involved in every decision. It really hands on. Business, hands right, on yeah, all the yeah. And to get beyond that, you've got to start automating and systemizing everything that's happening inside the company. And then you've also got to be expanding the entrepreneur's um, breadth of influence. So you've got to be bringing people in that believe in the vision and can carry the vision with you. As one person, you can only do so much. You know, your sphere of influence is limited. 
what you can touch and feel. So you've got to start bringing in people in the organisation that think and feel the same way, and then they can spread that even further. So you've got to grow the entrepreneurial organisation as well as improve the systems and the processes that are driving to automate things. And kind of uh, get disciples. You know, get, get people that's that get people get the, the disciples message. That are get that I love that. Another person. That's a great Absolutely. Yeah, another person saying the same things you're saying. But also, that's people's perspective. Yeah. Don't be afraid to say, hey, what do you think of what this is? Oh, yeah. I love... You've got to get perspective love, because everybody I'm, sees things slightly differently. So opinions matter. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love getting, whether it's ordering appetizers or whether it's, you know, something in my life. Like, I love getting feedback from people. Yeah. That's, how it's, it's, that's how you learn. Yeah. You learn much more when you're listening than when you're talking. <laughs> I know. My wife tells me that all the time. And Don't worry. We all struggle with that. I know. <laughs> my God. I think I it's something to do with our DNA makeup. <laughs> well, I think we also like to solve problems too, right? Yeah. She always says, you know, she's like, oh, JP, you never listen. I'm like, that's a weird way to start a conversation. <laughs> so, uh, guys, I, I really appreciate y'all coming on. I appreciate it. What else? What else do you have? Um, obviously, you can find, a, you know, Vero on, on LinkedIn. Check Vero out the, LinkedIn. What, what's check the, out the website. What's the website? www.vero.com. V-A-R-E-L.com. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. Reach reach out to Derek and uh, say hello. Introduce yeah. yourself. Um, Send me a message. You know, I'm always looking to connect with people. So, yeah. absolutely. What was your favorite concert you've been to? Oh, I've got to say Rolling Stones. Nice. What can I say? Now, here's a good story to end with. So we we're sit, we're sitting in Florida, and my wife's a big Rolling Stones fan. We've been married for 46 years. She's the light of my life and the best people judge I've ever met in my life. She can tell. She can tell. Some, oh yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's Incredible a good trait. Really, really good. It's a great a resource and a great asset. So my wife's the best judge of character I've ever met. But she's sitting there and she's like, oh my God, the Rolling Stones are coming to the Hard Rock in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. We've got to get tickets. I'm like, a great idea. We've seen them four or five times. Let's go and see them in Florida. So she does the thing on the phone and says, I've got six tickets. Oh, they're great tickets. Look, six tickets, $3,900. I'm like, give me the phone. I'll book them. So I get the phone and I'm putting in my credit card number and I'm looking at the small print and it says, $3,900 each. Oh, <laughs> so I like the Rolling Stones, but I don't like them that much. I like them. I don't love them. I don't love them. So the Stones for you, what about you? Ah, uh, best one life, probably Oasis. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, a little different. Okay. And I can, also, I can see that. Yeah. I, can I think see it's Oasis. just part of the upbringing, right? You grew up sure. in the UK. So, what, when I, so I went to Lancaster University yeah. for, for a year. We're in the Scotland uh, right. football league. I played American football yeah. over there. Yeah, I played college football, I guess you could How say. How was that? Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I knew nothing about football and I knew the most. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously you grew up to rugby, you know, you know, football and all that stuff. But uh so I I remember being over there in Oasis and I was over there two thousand, two thousand one or yeah. something like that. Oasis yeah. was huge. 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 And I remember I remember what I loved about Lancaster University. It's this it's this campus about, you know, mile loop. Yeah. There was nine little, you know, Places people live, dorms people yeah. live, and there's always a pub. There's nine different pubs on campus. Perfect. And every every day after football, I'd go up with like, I think like, you know, two, three quid, go and get like a pint of Carling. Yeah. <laughs> Some wonderful beer. But first off, pump the brakes. I, I grew up on Middle Light, so it is wonderful beer. Okay? It is wonderful beer. So, wait, is Carling viewed as shit over there? It's not great. 
Well, I, <laughs> you're laughing now. Perspective, I'm, I'm, right? I'm going to edit this part out. It was really good. I'm going I'm to dub that your voice in there. So, no, but I mean, I, I can see Oasis. Okay. I dig Oasis. Oasis is good. I think it's kind of generational for that age group yeah. as well. It's just, it was a big, big band that was highly successful. I think it's a kind of different feel for it as well. I think, I think it's a tough call. I mean, because obviously, you know, we've all seen so many different yeah. styles of bands. I mean, the sure. last one we saw was Clapton. How do you think Clapton did? I thought Clapton did a really good job. I thought I was very impressed by his skills and capability at that age. I, mean, I, I know. He was a great entertainer, did a great job. But I got to say that my absolute favorite band is one that Derek will probably throw up all over. But uh, <laughs> I know where he's going. I'm going to finish your sentence. It is. Simply Red. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Every... One of the best bands the world has ever seen. Simply really? Red. Why? They're just good performers? Oh, good performers, but also the quality of the music and the soulness of the music, just phenomenal. Okay. Yeah. On well, road trips around Scotland. Them, six CD them. changer with six Simply Red CDs <laughs> on repeat. Wait, the six CDs in the trunk? Yes. Oh my yes. God. That was a commitment. Every one of them was Simply Red. So that was a commitment, making those decisions when the CDs yeah. were in the trunk. Different, yeah. different time frame. Exactly. Exactly. They were never changed out. It they, was just always simply, simply red. red. I dig that though. <laughs> but you should listen to them. If you haven't listened to them, listen to them. You will love it. Okay. Yeah. I'm on it. Which, uh, what, greatest hits? What? Also, uh, Stars. Stars? Yeah. I will listen to it on the way home. Perfect. I dig it. Yeah. So what else you got for us? I think that's it. Just uh, thank you very much for having us Dude, on. It's been an all. awesome morning. Hey, what a way to start the day. So, what a, I'm, what? And also, look, I'm proud of what you're doing. You're, you're putting your name out there. You're doing an awesome job. You're connecting people. You're doing things that people haven't been doing in the past. So well, thank you, man. Keep leading. I, I appreciate you're doing that. a fantastic job leading. You know, I love the subtlety of crew. You like that? You digging it. that? It's great. I'm telling you, you got to bring that a little, little style to it. But that's the thing, though. Like, oftentimes, like, you know, I don't see kind of, uh, obviously, when you're trying to, you know, build something and all that stuff, I don't see the impact, you know, I have. But then, you know, once, every now and then I'll get a feedback from, you know, a customer that's been to an event or something yeah. like that. And it's always so positive and so good. So I just need to keep that. Yeah. On the drive, like you just—it's you're you're evolving every day, every show, right? It's you're doing things slightly different, sure. and it's a consistent evolution. And you're you're driving change, right? You're changing the way people connect. You're getting information out there that's never been public. Sure. My problem is, I have, I need to enjoy the ride. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got to stop looking. Oh, I want this. I'll, I want to be there today. I need to enjoy the process. Just live in the present. Just enjoy like you, it. you gotta enjoy the process yeah. of, of growing and building, and just sure. like you, kind of you gotta enjoy the process as well. Yeah. It's not the goal you want to be because once you're at the goal, it's like now what? Yeah, you want to enjoy the dance. Absolutely, enjoy the, uh, too the symphony. Exactly. So. Life's too short. Y'all, I appreciate no. it. Cheers, I have cheers, y'all. Cheers, JP. Thank you for having. Thank us. you for being a wonderful host, JP. Well, thank you. Really for enjoyed on. it. Thank, thank you. you. If you're going up to uh, Del Fristos, you, you're going to do Del. If you're going up to uh, Fort Worth, you're going to do Del Frisco Steakhouse up there. Absolutely. Right? I think. We're doing Grace and Grace, something tonight. Grace, yeah, Garden Grace. Garden Grace, Grace which Ooh, is really good. Yeah. That's down here. Yeah, that right? may be a different one up there. Grace something. Yeah. Well, there's a Garden Grace down here. There might be yeah. there might be one up there, but I, my favorite steakhouse is Del Frisco's up there. Del Frisco's. It's not the question. Downtown Fort Worth. It's not the question of the food. It's like yeah. you walk in there, you're yeah, like, right, you're like you need a six-shooter. Yeah. yeah. You just need like a six-shooter to pick off the balcony. It's a very cool uh, old-school place. They have place. that big pineapple like margaritas like pre-mixed in these big They'll knock you on your ass. Well, yeah. there used to be a Del Frisco's in spring. It was called the Frisco's Piano Bar, yeah. which was awesome. That was my favorite at Haunt in, in Houston when we were coming here for the summer. So, I mean, we're the crazy people from Scotland that used to come to Houston. Used to summer in, in Houston. <laughs> right. Who would do that? Yeah, you know? no one does. Wait, tennis. But we, hours we, would, we would end up at the Woodlands Athletic Club, Woodlands uh, Country Club with a villa there. And I'd be working at the corporate office in, in, in Houston, and they would be members of Houston Athletic Club, go swim every day, play tennis, play golf, do what they're doing. So they had a hard life when I was working. 
Well, I mean, that was during their two weeks. Yeah, so, that, two weeks. That was their two weeks. Let them enjoy yeah, themselves. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was their two weeks. Come on, enjoy man. some of it. It's the work-life work like balance <laughs> we're trying to get to. <laughs> all right, fellas. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in to, uh, to, uh, to Energy Crew. I want to thank you all for coming on the, the show, Safe Travels, and I really enjoyed this. And uh, I guess until uh, till next time. There's hey, going to be a next, next time. time. I think uh, Q1, Q2 next year, there'll be another update. There's always a next time with you, which I love. It's always good sh shooting the shit with you, so I dig that. So I want to thank you. I want to thank the Petroleum Club for uh, for hosting us. Um, thank you. And uh, I guess everyone, thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all soon. <laughs>